Praise God. His power and glory proclaim. I, I, I pray, I'm sure that you are taking advantage of the gospel and Christmas carols in this season. In the sense that you have relationships with people that don't know Jesus yet, who hum, whistle, sing along with gospel content for about a month. And it's an opportunity for us because we know them and they know that we love them and they love us to just say, hey, have you ever thought about what you're singing? Have you ever done that? Maybe not. Maybe I'm weird. I have. Um, with my really good friends. And, and quite frankly, um, they're very kind in their response. And they say, not actually. I just have been singing this since I'm a kid. I was a kid. And, and um, I had that conversation with one of my friends this week. And at the end of the conversation, I just said, so just so you know, now that you know why Jesus, God became a man and was enfleshed, you got to do something with him. You got to do something with Jesus. And, um, you always wait for God the Spirit to pull the scales from someone's eyes and allow them to just see, you know, the truth of Christ in that moment. And the conversation finished with, thanks for the nice talk. <laughs> and so I hugged him and I said, thank you for the nice talk. I appreciate that. And I'll continue to pray that you understand who Jesus is and, and thanks for being my friend. I hope that you have solid enough friendships out there where gospel talk with people that need Jesus is, 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 is more natural than not. It's never going to be a popular story. It's never going to be embraced by the most. But it certainly is uh, as Colleen saying, something of God's power to be proclaimed. Amen. Right? Uh, and it goes much beyond just the chat, doesn't it? It's a proclamation. It's a proclamation. And uh, trust God's using your, uh, your witness. I, I, I pray that you have a wonderful time with your families this week. I must have been texted by over 50 people saying, Pastor, I'm not ill, but all my family's coming in this week, and I can't get them ill, <laughs> and so I'm going to worship from home today, because they've got to go back to their places of work, and they can't be ill, and so I don't know what to do, and I said, you're doing the right thing, praise God, I hope you enjoy your families. For so many others that, that are not feeling well, uh, I hope that you strengthen before your family arrives. And for me, with you today, so if I'm not as huggy and handshakey as normal, just know that we have something happening this week that we never expected in our family, and that is uh, after two boys get married, we never expected to have them and their wives in our home on their first Christmas together because I've always taught my boys that when you do get married you should go spend Christmas with your wife's family first and don't worry about us uh, just give us all the other major holiday no, <laughs> um, and so we didn't expect it we were just making our plans as if they weren't going to be here and lo and behold all six plus two uh, new daughters are going to be in our home. Plus, one of the new daughter's parent. So what a blessing. Amen. But I got two boys who are headed out the day after Christmas to go places where they can't be uh, sick. Uh, else they have some huge consequences in their lives. So even though if they got sick, they might not get that sick, they just can't get sick. So if I'm not huggy and handshaky today with you, I, I, I would ask you to understand, if that's okay. Uh, so for this week and, and maybe next, 
Maybe some air hugs would be good. I don't know. I'm about as confused as y'all are with this thing, but we're just going to try to make our way through it one day at a time. But I do hope that, that you're able to be with your family or as many of your family as possible. And I do hope you have the opportunity to enjoy them uh, to the fullest. I hope we enjoy the text that we're going to study this morning to the fullest. So if you take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 2 today, Hebrews chapter 2, this will be my Christmas message to you. I know I gave a couple last week, I think Saturday night, I made a, little, a couple devotional thoughts about this text, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to dive deeper into it for Sunday morning, December 19th. And we're going to mine some more truth out of this text that I trust will be a great encouragement to your heart as it has been uh, to, to mine. Let's read verses 10, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. And of course, we're going to be preaching on this morning the necessity of the incarnation of God in Christ for the salvation and perseverance of the saints, okay? You can write that down, that's our proposition. The necessity of the incarnation of God in Christ for or unto the salvation and the perseverance of the saints. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, and this is going to be uh, really the main part of our text, verses 14 to 18, we'll spend pretty lengthy introduction on verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and, excuse me, 10 through 13, but uh, this will be the meat here. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not, he, he does give help, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Angels don't need any help. These are angels that have been confirmed in creature holiness. These are the unfallen angels. They're not in sin. The people who needed help were the sinful descendants of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help as we dissect and mine out the, the truth of this text for the um, encouragement of the saints and for your glory. And we just admit this morning that we need your help as we do so. And we look forward to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that indwells us to bring the significance of these words to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I've always thought it appropriate to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord throughout the year in my own personal life. I also think it equally appropriate to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, as a body at this particular time of year. In our weather patterns, winter brings us some of the shortest days of the year. All of us love it when December 21st comes around and we go to work in the dark and we come home in the dark. In the middle of this month, they're just long, dark days. When those holiday lights begin to appear on streets throughout our towns, they're a welcome sight in the long darkness of these days. For many of us, and especially our children and grandchildren, those lights are a wondrous and welcome sight as they pierce the darkness of these long December days and direct our attention to the light of Jesus Christ who appeared from heaven by the grace of God to bring light and life to a world long enslaved to the darkness of sin and the sadness that it brings. The Bible teaches that God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. Amen? We also know that God did fully become a man in the person of baby Jesus who would be that divine, fully contrasting light of God to a comprehensively dark and dying world. This is the reality we celebrate this week and throughout the year. This is the message we preach today from this text. It was necessary for God to take on a body in the purpose of Christ for many divine and holy reasons. And this morning, we're just going to consider a handful of those. For greater context, we've read verses 10 through 18. In verse 10, we read that it was fitting. Do you remember that? You see that in verse 10? For it was fitting for him. Who's the him? Well, it was fitting for deity. Particularly, it was appropriate for God. Divinity must take on humanity and to suffer in order for God's purposes in Christ to be made complete. For the Jew of this day, for a Messiah to suffer was simply shameful. That's why many of the Jews, Jesus' own countrymen, rejected him. Because they were not expecting a Messiah to suffer, they were expecting a Messiah to reign, and they were ashamed of him. No Messiah of theirs was to be weak and suffer under the hand of wicked, irreligious men. But for God who created all things, the passage says. For Christ who created all things, this passage in Colossians 1 teaches. It was not shameful, but it was fitting. It was appropriate. It was necessary to bring, the text says, many sons to glory. And this the suffering of enfleshed deity did. Many is the term here. Many sons to salvation. Many sons to experience the glory of God in Christ in personal conversion. The enfleshment and consequent sufferings of Christ was successful. It was the perfection of the text says, of God's plan for the salvation of mankind. The language of the passage teaches that Jesus' sufferings brought about the finality, the perfecting of God's eternal decree to save the person in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning we rejoice that God is faithful to that which he eternally decreed. The passage goes on to say in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God is not ashamed of those he has saved because he is equally not ashamed of him who has sanctified them. Emmanuel, a gospel writer's name for God incarnate, means God with us. It was God who in Christ was pleased to become known to men. The passage teaches that both the sanctifier and the sanctified come from one, as we've read. That one is God. God is the origin, one author said, of the human nature of both Jesus and believers. And both are conceived by the same Holy Spirit in their spiritual natures too. These precious words provide for us the understanding of the spiritual oneness between Christ and those who are being sanctified since it is obvious that only believers are in view, not all humanity. And surely it is believers alone that Christ regards as his brethren. We all feel, we all should feel, I guess we should say, and I'm sure you do, a deep sense of humility when we come to an understanding of a passage like this. Christ is not ashamed to be and to share the fullness of himself with you and me and to call us his brethren even as we are having Christ formed in us in our spiritual growth. What divine patience. The family of God, therefore, should have no poor relations within it. God in Christ considers us his brethren, and he is not ashamed of us. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, we should not be ashamed of each other. So whatever needs to happen to make sure that we ascend back to the comments that we made by way of opening introduction this morning, whatever we have to do to wrestle ourselves back to viewing each other in light of who we are in Christ and then assuming spiritual growth because of who we are in Christ as Christ is formed with us, and then walk with each other in dealing with each other's Human failures, whether they're Hebrews chapter 1 caught in an oversight or whether it's an actual sin, whatever we do, we are not to be ashamed of one another as God is not ashamed of us in Christ and we relate well together as we should as the company of God. I think we should let that sink in regarding how believers treat each other as God's physical and spiritual offspring. So many believers treat other believers by how they were treated in their upbringing. And I think that kind of makes sense. We have a tendency to, to treat each other by how we knew domestic life, how we knew vocational life. We were trained in those environments how to treat others. Others may be loved more because of the, the good way in which they were raised, maybe by another believer, or maybe they were led in their jobs by another believer. But for God in Christ... His loyal love to us remains immutable. He will never be ashamed of us because we are his brethren. The 
We read in verses 10 and 11 three Old Testament passages that underpin what the author has just said in verses 10 and 11. Excuse me, we read in verses 12 and 13. They are cited to demonstrate the identification of Christ with men whom he came to save. Psalm 22 was quoted here. This is a messianic psalm. This psalm contains the truth that Messiah would faithfully reveal the Father to men whom he acknowledges as brethren. You see that there in verse 12. I will proclaim your name to the brethren. The message from God to all mankind and especially to those who would believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is the sermon given to the midst of the congregation. Christ is the praise of God and is the praise of those who have received him as their savior. Both become the praise of us as we worship together. God is to be praised and what God has done in each of us in Christ is to be praised. Isaiah 8.17 is alluded to next by the author of Hebrews. And again, I will put my trust in him, Isaiah says. Isaiah places himself part of the faithful remnant of Israel that is persevering in the midst of the most difficult time in Israel's history. professing believers, if you will, spurning the spoken and preserved word of God. Spurning Isaiah's message. There are some that believe that Isaiah is a type of Christ here as Christ also persevered and was perfected. Was the perfection, really, of God's divine decree to permit the fall and then his divine decree to save God's plans to save were perfected by his suffering both Christ and Isaiah and God's faithfulness through God's faithfulness fully put their trust in God to endure their difficulties verse 13 is really a continuation of that portion of the book of Isaiah And there God explains that his brethren do something when unbelief and toil exist around them. They persevere. As God's decrees to save and sanctify and perfect through the suffering of Christ immutably march forward for time and eternity, so do his brethren by the same strength supplied by God. We will trust. We will live. as Christ trusted, as Christ lived. It's no secret, friends, though though this is a joyful time of year for believers as we consider the ramifications and the fruit of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the body of Christ, our brethren, are being tested. In 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've never seen the body globally tested as she has been and is being tested. We know from 1 Peter why those tests come. We studied that little aside there for five weeks in 1 Peter 4. The body's being tested. Pastors, elders, deacons, long-standing members are being tested. And it's not just in one unique way. It's in many, many, many unique and varied ways. But what do brethren do? They don't have a poor relationship with God because God's good with them in Christ. No relational problems and positional truth. 
We should be maintenancing the unity produced by the Spirit of God among us, and you're doing a great job at that. Where there are many believers that are failing in that way of persevering. There's many pastors failing in that way of persevering. But perseverance is what we do because we are the brethren of God in Christ. And as Christ persevered through his toil and his suffering and the the plan of God, the eternal plan of God to save man was perfected in the suffering of Christ as he persevered, so we persevere. So we march on, according to what? According to the strength of the Spirit of God within us, and exclusively, friends, exclusively according to the Word of God. There's a big difference between old-fashioned Christianity and Bible Christianity. Old-fashioned Christianity does a lot of noble and moral things according to that which was customary in their time. And even old-fashioned Christianity that did a lot of good and moral things in their own way according to that time, even that Christianity is being shaken to its core now to really have the rust kicked off of their lives to actually look at what is thus saith the Lord about all things that pertain to life and godliness. But the brethren persevere. The brethren don't quit. Our divine brother did not quit. Praise God. Amen. He was born to die. Amen. He didn't quit. So maintenancing these divine relationships under the glory of God is to be done as we trust in him as our strength to accomplish perseverance in him told you the main portion of our text would be verses 14 to 18 you may or may not have noticed this as we were reading this passage before but there are two mentions of the incarnation one in verse 17 verse 14 and one in verse 17 therefore since the children share in the flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same there's the first one god was enfleshed in the person of baby jesus Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, including a body. He had to be. It was appropriate. So this is just core doctrine for us. The incarnation is of God in Christ is not to be debated. It's not to be doubted <laughs> it's to be embraced as an absolute essential for our salvation and our perseverance but with these two statements of the reality of the incarnation of divinity comes some fruits comes some purposes as to why and i just want to highlight three there's more than three in this passage, but there's three for you and me to realize and to apply to our own lives in the next 15 minutes. Okay. These are going to be introduced by the words that he might or the words so that. You'll see that. You've already seen it. that he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might. And he might is mentioned again in verse 15. But both of those phrases are in relationship to one reality. And that reality is this. God became flesh in Christ so that we might not fear death, 
nor live under the power of that which causes it. God was enfleshed in Christ so that we might not fear death, nor live under the power of that which causes it, which is sin. My dad began to be uh, my basketball coach in the sixth grade. Uh, He was convicted at that time in his life that he needed to spend more time with his kids, with his family. And he came to me and he apologized uh, as a pastor to a pastor's kid. He said, uh, I remember the conversation. Uh, Picking me up from school one day and he said, I'm just... uh, I'm sad, I'm sorry, I haven't been spending as much time with you as a kid, as a dad, that I should be. And he said, so I went to your school principal and I asked him if I could be your basketball coach. And I'm doing this, and he said, I'm telling you, Tim, it's, I'm, I'm telling you my weakness. He said, I, I had to ask to be your basketball coach to, to force me to spend time with you. He said, I want to let you know, I had a dad that didn't love me. He said, Tim, uh, my dad, my grandpa, never told my dad one time in my grandpa's 84 years that he loved my dad. Uh, My grandpa was an old-fashioned farmer, workaholic, and he disappeared before the sun rose, and he stayed out until after the sunset. And you were supposed to just do your chores, (laughs) do your work, and get by. He said, Tim, he said, I got my dad in me. He said, but I know God wants me to spend more time with you, and this is how I'm going to do it. He said, so I apologize. Would you forgive me, and will you work with me? I I was sixth grade. I was like, sure. Appreciate that. So my dad started to be my basketball coach in the sixth grade. And it was cool at the front. It was cool at the beginning. Interesting things in between, but it ended up being a really good experience. <laughs> I can remember as a sixth grader facing our, our, our formidable foes for the first time, right? We were a new group of guys that had played together on recess for years. Um, Pastor Hobie was one of these guys. And... Um, we had all kinds of energy, but we hadn't been ever coached. We had a little bit of ability, but we'd never been coached. But my dad had been coached at the high school level. He had been coached at the college level. He coached the high school level at Kenston High School here in Jaga County basketball. And he knew what coaching was. So every practice would start with the quoting of a team Bible verse. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. My dad would have one of us pray that we would endure well through the ridiculous hardship he was about to put us through. <laughs> we would always start in the locker room, and back then there were things, these archaic things called chalkboards. And he would write up some fundamentals that would be our fundamentals as a team for as long as he would coach us. And these were three things that he would preach every practice and every game when we looked scared to death in facing our formidable opponent. He said, if you do these things and you do these things with energy and you do these things together, he said, you don't have to have the greatest ability to win basketball games. He said, but you'll win. We didn't win every game, but he was right. Stick to the fundamentals, play hard together, and you can break the back of your opponent instead of them breaking yours. He said, once you experience this, he said, you guys, you'll see, you'll become hungry for more victories. And boy, he was right. There was one team across town that ended up becoming a rival for us all the way through our senior year of high school. And boy, the first couple times, they just shellacked us. My dad would go right back to those three fundamentals on the chalkboard. And he'd coach us back up. 
The third time we played them, we clocked them. And then that felt so good. And they never beat us again. They didn't. We refused to allow that to happen. The text before us highlights some fundamental doctrinal realities that need to be known, they need to be embraced, and they need to be applied to each one of our lives, especially because our opponent, Satan, is ridiculously formidable. Satan would love to have us live in defeat and even in fear of death. But know this truth in this text. Live this truth and the tables will be turned. You'll embrace the success and then you will, by the influence of the Spirit of God, persevere well. Because this will be this doctrine that governs you. Not Satan, the God of this world who rules you. Again, verse 14, Christ needed to participate in genuine humanity. If he, as the substitute, was to suffer the penalty which man had incurred, Notice the phrase here, flesh and blood. We read that. It occurs three times in the New Testament. Matthew 16, 1 Corinthians 15, and Galatians chapter 1. The phrase here, though, in the original language actually says blood and flesh. And only two times in the New Testament does the Greek grammar read that way. One is here, and the other one is in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. You see, in the passage before us, there's a reason for the emphasis of blood and then flesh. Many good authors note this is significant because the author is trying to um, encourage, persuade God's brethren in Christ to continually be aware that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, while at the same time reminding us that it was a human Jesus that had a primary purpose for his coming to earth. Christ was enfleshed in order that through death he might accomplish his purpose. An author said sin had to be committed in the realm of human life and its penalty was imposed in the same realm. Since God could not die, he sent the son to become man that he might pay the penalty of death for men. The passage is very clear. That as the brethren of God in Christ, the death of Christ appropriated to us in personal salvation rendered the effects of sin powerless in our lives. Christ destroyed the devil's influence in our lives on the cross forever. Verse 14 says that he might render powerless. Let me tell you what that means literally. It means to bring to nothing. Write it down. It means to bring to nothing, to render inoperative, to make ineffective. Christ did this on our behalf by satisfying fully the claims of God's outraged righteousness, Guthrie writes. By paying the full penalty in death, Christ removed forever the very grounds of death and satanic accusation in our lives. No more, Guthrie goes on to say, could Satan slander a believer before God and impugn God's righteousness because the sinner had not paid with his life. The penalty was paid in full by Christ. And as a consequence, the brethren of God in Christ have had Satan himself rendered powerless in their lives though he's the God of this world that orchestrates sinful actions that bring ultimate death. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3 that we have been removed from the jurisdiction of death 
and the kingdom of darkness into the realm of Christ's kingdom forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that's why the sting of death is also removed. Grave, where's your victory? In Christ, the sting and power of death has been removed, and the author of sin and death, Satan, has been rendered powerless in our lives. Many of you that have been in Christ for a long time have heard this phrase. It's been used to preachers of old for a long time. We have been saved from the penalty of sin in Christ. We've been saved from the power of sin in Christ, and someday we'll be saved from the very presence of sin in Christ. Maybe today. The text goes on to say, for he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, quite frankly, he's writing the book of Hebrews to Hebrews. (laughs) So he's writing to Messianic Jews. Spiritually, we know that we are called the spiritual descendants of Abraham in the Bible as well. The Bible says that God gives help to us. Can I give you three other texts in the New Testament where he uses that word help? All three in reference to Jesus. It literally means to take hold of someone in order to save their life. Okay? In order to help them. Remember when Peter got out of the boat, was walking on the water and began to doubt? And he began to sink? And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 21, Jesus reached out and grabbed. It's used there. Mark chapter 8 and verse 23, when Jesus took the hand of the blind man in order to heal him, it's used there. Luke chapter 14 and verse 4, when Jesus took the man with leprosy by the hand in order to heal him, it's there. Certain death is imminent apart from the outreach of God in flesh's hand to save. Save from what? The effects of sin. Sin causes doubt, Peter. Sin causes blindness. Sin causes leprosy. Only God enfleshed in Christ can reach out and reverse the effects of that which causes death. This is what God does in Christ for us in a spiritual and physical sense. He rescues us from sin and the power and the sting of its deathly influence. And there's a second practical value to Christ's incarnation. We need God in Christ for our salvation and perseverance because we need a qualified high priest. We need a qualified high priest. We saw that here. We've heard a lot about the value of experts in the last 20-some months. And there's much these experts have gone through to be called such. And we're thankful for most of them. But in Christ, we have a divinely and fully approved expert in relationship to his priesthood. Notice how I phrase this second of three values of the incarnation. We need a qualified high priest. I didn't say we need a high priest. That's true. But the efficacious nature of Christ's priesthood on our behalf means nothing unless Christ himself is qualified. So we come to the phrase, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, but notice in relationship to who? The text says, in things pertaining to God. The language of the passage is very clear. First, God required a merciful and faithful high priest. Christ's priesthood is of no value to us unless it is first eternally valuable to the Father. As the Logos, the eternal word of God in flesh, Jesus can be and is the qualified priest and author and finisher of our faith. As God, Jesus is merciful. 
in Christ, God withholds from us what we deserve, which is death and the fear of it. God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Faithful is he who has called you, will also bring it to pass. God is immutably faithful. In Christ, he demonstrated that same immutable divine attribute. Christ can't help himself as the Lagos to be just faithful, perfectly so. And in him, we can be presented blameless before God at the appearing of the Son. Our eternal, merciful, and faithful high priest is so because his Father is, and the Father approves of the Son and he approves of his priestly work on our behalf. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people, the Bible says here. Your translation might actually say atonement, but the New American Standard Bible translates this word accurately, which is propitiation. The Jew of this time would have been highly familiar with this term propitiation. They would have automatically thought of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement and the high priest that was there to... To, to make expiation, if you will, for the sins of Israel through blood sacrifice and the appearing in the Holy of Holies. They would have known. And the text is saying here that he was a merciful and faithful high priest so that and because he was approved of God, he was capable of being that expiation. He was capable of taking the wrath of God upon himself and off of us as he incurred the full anger of God's righteous wrath upon himself on the cross. We needed a, an approved faithful and high priest and may I say an approved divine faithful and high priest and we needed God to become flesh in Christ because folks simply we needed help that's what verse 18 teaches us we've read it already we need help for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. When the author of Hebrew here talks about that which Christ suffered, he's not speaking just of his death on the cross. You can read the Gospels and see the manifold ways in which our Savior suffered because of who he was and what he preached and how he lived. For Jesus Christ, would you confidently be able to say that he lived a life of suffering? I would say the Gospels are replete with examples. For all the New Testament glamorous characters that we're familiar with, could we also say that they probably lived lives of suffering most of what is taught to us in the New Testament especially by Paul who wrote two thirds of it his life was a life of suffering certainly there were respites of peace and, and respites of time to eat drink and be merry but because of being brethren they would suffer but we needed this faithful high priest. We needed this, our God, to be enfleshed in Christ because he was acquainted with the ultimate grief of suffering. Nobody knows suffering like Jesus. But Jesus is our brother. He's our divine brother who can come and does come to our aid. 
Wonderfully so. Wonderfully so. Moment by moment, as we're kept in his love. We sang it this morning. I had planned to quote it as conclusion, forgetting that it was on the order of service to be sung, Good Christian Men Rejoice. With what? Our heart, our soul, and our voice. Give ye heed to what we say. Jesus Christ is born today. Ox and ass before him bow, and he's in the manger now. Praise God, Christ is born today. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. What's the bliss? Life in him, eternal life in him, freed from the penalty and the power of sin and in his kingdom, the presence of sin itself. Jesus Christ was born for this. He's opened heaven's door and we are blessed in him forevermore. Christ was born for this. Rejoice now you need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born for that. For this. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We, we thank you for the simplicity and yet the profound nature of these words before us, which will forever feed and encourage our souls no matter how many times we read them because they're so full of effervescing truth of the reality of the blessings of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this Christmas season that we would be armed as brethren to persevere according to the word of God. That each of us from this pastor to all of our leaders, to each one of those that would call Grace Church their church home, that we would together persevere as Christ's brethren. And know that we're able to do that because You were enfleshed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we have salvation from our sins. In him, we have a continual faithful and high priest. And in him, we have moment by moment aid as we need it. Help us, Lord, to just enjoy these doctrinal realities in the practical way we live our lives, both in this season and throughout the year. In Christ's name.